Welcome to Nature Now, an original production by KPTZ volunteers. Nature Now is a program of information and insights about the natural history of our region. We welcome observations and suggestions from our listeners. Care of Nature Now at kptz.org. Hello, and welcome to Nature Now. I'm your host, Nan Evans, and my guest today is naturalist Ken Wilson. Ken is a research biologist. He's also a great naturalist and educator and a Port Townsend resident. Ken is also one of the key participants supporting the ongoing Jefferson Land Trust Nature in Your Neighborhood series. Ken and I will be talking about observing as a naturalist and about Ken's belief that we are all innately, naturally, neurologically, and genetically wired to be naturalists as humans. We can be fascinated and often excited by observing behaviors, attitudes, and traits in the natural world as we use our sensory experiences to notice the patterns and variety in the world around us. We are, of course, recording this by Zoom. I'm in my backyard. So right now, I am currently reading the June book selection for the Natural History Society's book club. It's a book called Naturalist by E.O. Wilson. And by the way, the Natural History Society's book club is open to all. The next gathering is set for Monday, June the 22nd. It will either be by Zoom or outdoors at the Illahi Preserve. You can find out more by going to the Jefferson Land Trust website and clicking on the link to the Natural History Society, or go directly to jltnatural.org slash book dash club. That's jltnatural.org slash book dot club. Well, E.O. Wilson is an American biologist. He's a naturalist and a prolific writer. He's sometimes been called the father of biodiversity and an acclaimed author of multiple books for scientists and for the general reader. Wilson approaches the natural world with a childlike sense of wonder and curiosity and a keen, sharp, and very well-informed intellect. In Naturalist, Wilson describes naturalists as a special group of scientists who are also storytellers and who go into the field with open eyes and minds full of curiosity and opportunism. Wilson sees a naturalist as someone captivated by the tapestry of nature. And I happen to love that phrase, the tapestry of nature, searching for patterns discovered directly, often with the aid of binoculars or magnifying glasses, and often with the aid of field guides. And I can think of, frankly, no better example of such a scientist than Port Townsend owned Ken Wilson. So welcome, Ken. Glad to have you on the show. Well, Nan, thanks for that introduction. I think you're exaggerating a bit. So let's start with the core piece. You've been known to state, as I mentioned earlier in the program, that we as humans are essentially fundamentally predisposed, pre-wired, innately 
naturalist. Yes. Why do you say that? <laughs> I not only say that, but I've arrived at the conclusion that it's not even something that could be debated because it is so obvious. I looked in a dictionary to see what the definition of a naturalist is. Oddly enough, there is no consensus. And and actually, I scribbled a note or two from your description uh, of E.O. Wilson's definition of a naturalist. Is it that a person has some technical scientific training, an advanced degree, or their career is as a naturalist? And so from that perspective, it's the knowledge that you have that defines you as a naturalist. Or is it that you can name things? That mountain over there, Mount Rainier, is made out of andesite. This bird is a robin. And there are many people who will definitely consider themselves naturalists because they can put names on things. But they may not have any of the ecological understanding that, say, E.O. Wilson values as important. What I will argue is that I'm in agreement with the part of E.O. Wilson's definition where he used the word captivated. And so if it's a fact that a person experiences a heightened enjoyment, a captivation with their senses when they are experiencing some aspect of nature. If it's spontaneous, if it just hits their neurological system in such a way that there's a feeling of happiness, reward, and etc., uh, I will call that being a naturalist. You don't. So have- that's a, a fascination, a captivation. Oh an enjoyment, regardless if you've been trained in the field or know the names, but just your, your observation right. gives one that pleasure. It's, it's almost childlike in a way. Exactly. And actually, I've done a lot of traveling. And when I'm in the United States, I do know the names of these birds and those trees. But I've also traveled to places like Costa Rica and seen beautiful tropical birds And I'll just think, oh, this is a beautiful bird. And I'll have no particular intent on ever looking it up in a book. So would someone say, oh, Ken loves nature, but he's not a naturalist. He did not know the name of that thing. Uh, But you say it's a naturalist just to be fascinated by it. And yeah, Neil Wilson used the word captivated. Yeah, captivated by it. So if someone is a neurobiologist in our audience... I would say that there are experiences in our life where we show neurologically, physiologically through neurotransmitters, where we show an aversion. There are experiences where our neurotransmitters foster an attraction. So, for example, a mother with her infant or a person with their dog, pet dog, when they look each other in the eyes, it actually causes the release of oxytocin, which is a neurotransmitter that fosters a bonding. Well, when someone is in nature, I would argue that there are neurotransmitters that fundamentally alter their physiological state in such a way that they're in a more positive state and it's spontaneous and they don't have to think of themselves as naturalists. And now I have some numbers If you consider that someone that enjoys fall colors is at least in part a naturalist, consider that 10 to 20 million people a year go to New England to see fall colors. And the vast majority of them, if you said, are you a naturalist? They'd go, 
No. no. I just like fall colors. Right, right. If all you like are colors, go to a paint store, get a few gallons of whatever colors, paint a few pieces of plywood, put them outside with your beach chair, and enjoy yourself. So the the contrast I'm making is basically it's the nature that gives us that rush. It's not merely that you like the color yellow or red or what have you. So 10 to 20 million people who collectively are spending $3 billion in New England. Okay, here's another one. Alaska cruises are one of the most popular cruises in the entire world. Commonly, they'll do three or four or five different stops at ports, go or Ketchikan, Skagway, Alaska. And one of the stops is Glacier Bay, which is the only stop that is not a town. And it turns out that Glacier Bay is the most popular stop on an Alaska cruise. Well, all it is, is water that's made into giant ice cubes. Why don't you just go to your freezer, make some (laughs) ice cubes, and then imagine them being big and you could save thousands of dollars on an Alaska. And and I remember visiting Glacier Bay and having this amazing wow experience that I didn't, I don't get with my freezer, you know? Right, exactly. So if we're being entirely rational and we were to imagine that we were aliens arriving on planet earth, there'd be no particular reason why someone who likes water that's frozen to automatically like water that's frozen in nature versus their freezer or water that's frozen where it's a big amount of water that's frozen versus a small amount of water that's frozen. Okay. So Ken, I need to ask a question and I'm I'm sure I'm being on the top of my mind because I've been reading E.O. Wilson from an evolutionary perspective. What advantages would that have given humans over their development as a species? Yeah, it's so funny. You phrased that question exactly the way I was phrasing it in my notes because I was thinking this makes no sense because critters, like a mosquito, is adapted to be acutely aware of body heat and carbon dioxide concentration. Right. Where's the blood? Right. Where's the blood? A vulture has a really keen attraction to things that are rotting. <laughs> okay. That makes sense. Evolutionarily, we go, yeah, oh, that's... otherwise they'd starve to death. And then a human being, prior to civilization, salt, which is essential in our diet as a micronutrient, but was scarce in nature, our taste buds evolved to be extremely sensitive to salt. And so we go, okay, that makes sense. But what makes sense about the fact that we love fall colors? Did primitive man millions of years ago who liked fall colors have more children than the ones who didn't like fall colors? Yeah, I mean, clearly that's kind of nonsensical. But why is it that we evolved a captivation, to use that phrase again, to nature? Exactly. And so that's why I gave what you might call non-examples. Right. Right. Okay. These are examples where it's no mystery. That's how we are because it makes sense. Seeing reflections on a pond, seeing fall colors, what would be the advantage? And what I came up with were two hypotheses. 
And one is that if in fact, very diverse sensory stimuli put our minds and our senses in a more alert state physiologically and create enjoyment, that would be a survival advantage because diverse sensory stimuli that we enjoy, that we're attracted to more universally, it would create a human being or facilitate a human being who is more spontaneously aware of their environment. So it may not be that evolution specifically was in effect saying, oh, let's have humans like fall colors. Let's like humans have an enjoyment of reflections. But if overall we are attracted to diverse sensory stimuli, perhaps that's an advantage from the standpoint of natural selection. So we've talked about, you know, the evolutionary advantage perhaps of humans developing this captivation with nature and natural patterns and observations. Do we know anything about other animals with complex minds or advanced development? I'm thinking orcas, great apes, elephants, ravens. Uh, What do we know about other species? Well, I think it's a fascinating question. And years ago, we thought that animals couldn't think. And now we We know know better. Yeah. And perhaps we now think that animals don't appreciate nature. And maybe in five years, we'll realize we were wrong again. Okay. I I can live with that. That would be an interesting area for future scientists to, to be sensitive to. Now I want to go to something else. Okay, let's accept that we as humans are are naturalists. We observe the world around us. We we notice things that grab our attention, that fascinate us, that become part of our memories. As you think about that, do you see patterns or visual pictures that illustrate you know what we observe? And I'm thinking, for instance, color. Sometimes it's the lack of color that we notice and captures our attention, like the lack of color in a, an Arctic winter landscape where it's all this sort of uh, silken past, light pastels or the intensity of color in you know, an equatorial rainforest bird population. Mm-hmm. What are the kinds of things that, that grab our attention? Well, you know, I, I it's an interesting question because I started making a list. And so, for example, for no apparent reason, we are attracted in nature to saturated hues. And so a really intense red, a saturated red, or a saturated yellow. And so that would explain why thousands of people drive for miles to see the tulip fields in the Skagit Valley in April. If it was just the color we were after, it's another trip to the hardware store to buy a few pints of different colored paints. But in nature, so we're attracted to saturated hues. We are also attracted to the lack of that when it's a misty, foggy day and you're watching the fog lift and really everything is just a monochromatic hue. both ends of the continuum from intense saturated colors to monochromatic 
we actually like both of those. And we so, thought, you know, I'm thinking about that. And I'm thinking the first time I ever went scuba diving in the Pacific Ocean, it was down around Carmel decades ago. And my overwhelming memory sense from that time is the color and the right. deep colors, the blues, the purples, the reds, the yellows. And it, it so enriched me and filled me in a way that other, other scenes had not. Uh, but yeah, that's the saturation. Huh. And, you know, related to that, I have not scooped. Well, I did scuba dive once, but um Snorkeling, for example, in various tropical places and the clarity of the water would be 100 feet. Yeah. The clarity is something that physiologically changes our mental state, our sensory state. And we almost automatically, every human being on the planet probably seeing that kind of clarity would feel a heightened sense of enjoyment. Likewise, there are times where when you're in a dense fog and you can't see more than three feet ahead of you, as long as you're not frightened of it, there's also an enjoyment about a dense fog. Mm -hmm. So again, it's the opposite ends of a continuum that often enchant us. So what about scale? You know, the macro view and the micro view. Oh, I'm so glad you mentioned that because the way they make money in African safaris is so people could see what are called the charismatic megafauna. Megafauna, right. Human beings, even those who would never consider themselves to be naturalists, love to see an elephant. Or here in the Northwest and elsewhere on coastlines where there are whales. Yeah, the whales. Yeah. It's a huge business. Well, there's this fascination with things that are huge. And then on the other hand, we love hummingbirds. Right. And a person who would never consider themselves to be a naturalist enjoys a hummingbird. And they enjoy a whale. But if it's in the middle, it's no big deal. Well, and I'm also even remembered on the further micro scale, I remember as a young biology student, a grad student, finding some of the microscope pictures of cells, right? sort of like modern art, you know, color and contrast and shapes. And sort of I had this fantasy for a while about, well, you could make a, a whole art form out of these uh, various slides we are talking about. And actually, I think some people do. Um, let me ask another question about sort of observing about sometimes it's the familiar that we're reacting to. Right. And sometimes it's the weird, the exotic, the, the unusual. I was thinking the other day about the first time again, as, as a, as a young person, I saw a blue heron rookery. It was like, what those long-legged, ungangly, big-winged birds are nesting as a big group in the top of a bunch of trees. And they're flying into this and they're not crashing and burning. So for me, yeah. that, that was the first time I'd seen one. It was like, wow, this is fascinating. How does this work? Why do they do that? And it was a whole different perspective on a critter that I saw 
you know, with, with some regularity around, you know, ponds and lagoons right. fishing. Well, you know, you're now giving an example to illustrate that point I like to make repeatedly about how we will enjoy opposite ends of a continuum. For you to see those great blue herons standing, you know, unnaturally in a treetop is so surprising and unnatural and that novelty grabs us. Then on the other hand, we are equally grabbed by the totally familiar, which is why we are attracted to our best friends and we get to know the robin that mm -hmm. nests in our backyard. And so that which is very familiar to us is enjoyable and that which is very unfamiliar to us is enjoyable. And I all of a sudden want to ask you about patterns. I'm thinking like the patterns of a chambered nautilus have always captivated me long before I knew it was the Fibonacci series and it was mathematically whatever. It was just the pattern. Uh, and sometimes the pattern of uh, feathers or scales in a fish right. are attractive. Talk to me a bit about patterns and the the sort of opposite ends on the pattern. Okay, <laughs> that's another good example because we love symmetry. And for those who know trees in the Northwest, you go up into the High Olympics or the Cascades and we have subalpine firs, which are very straight and narrow and tall and completely symmetrical. And we love the symmetry and their symmetry in all sorts of other forms of life. And then on the other hand, you go down to California or somewhere else. Oh, yes. Completely asymmetrical, windblown or... The, the coastal pines and yeah. Right, or the oak trees. An, an old oak tree or a live oak in Georgia is completely asymmetrical. And so we're attracted to the extremes of asymmetry and the extremes of symmetry, both. So, Ken, we obviously could be talking for probably hours about this, but I'm sure we have reached the end of Nature Now's time. So I just want to say wow and thanks, and I hope we have a chance to talk about this again. We hope you've enjoyed our program of authentic and eclectic news and information about the natural community where we live. Today's sound engineer and editor is Nora Petrich. Contact Nature Now hosts if you have comments, observations, or ideas, and email us at naturenow.kptz.org. We thank you so much for listening. And our ending music is a song called Patterns. It's written by Paul Simon. It was recorded by Simon and Garfunkel in 1966 on their third album, Parsley, Sage, Rosemary, and Time. And I will admit that dates me. I probably wore out the grooves in my um, LP listening to that. And the lyrics of the sound Simon suggests are about how life is a liberating maze following patterns, which we are because we can be trapped in them. Sometimes find it difficult to unravel, to understand, or control. Patterns by Paul Simon. The man said softly with 
Can scarcely be controlled. 